Thank you everyone for tuning in today for our second podcast from Ithaca College's NAFME chapter. We are your hosts, Raylene Ford and Caitlin Schneider. Good morning. It is Friday, November 20th, and today we have Dr. Parsons, a member of the music education faculty here at IC. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we know that this is your first year um, at IC, uh, so can you give us just some background on how you got to IC? Yeah, um, you know, I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version of the story because the the interesting part kind of happens at the end, really. Uh, I was a band director in Texas for 10 years at, at working in high schools. I was I was a, started my career at Hendrickson High School in the Austin area, uh, taught there for a couple of years, and then I spent the next eight years at Westlake High School, also in the Austin area. Uh, and then I got the, you know, I got the the grad school bug, and I started my master's degree uh, at UT Austin. And as soon as I started my master's degree, I got the PhD bug, and I had to just keep going and, and go get the terminal degree. And uh, as you, I'm sure know, around March of 2020, as I was finishing my degree, something big happened, and all of the jobs that I was interviewing for as I was finishing my degree and getting ready to start teaching. Uh, just evaporated. Like I mean, it, it, the the financial crisis in the in higher ed was sudden and drastic. And so you know, normally in our in a normal hiring cycle, you know, we would, if you're finishing your PhD, you probably have your your employment lined up sometime around March or April. You know, at the latest, maybe May. And it was June, and I still didn't have a job. You know, and, you know, I I have a wife and two sons and, you know, we kind of need to figure out what's going on here and we're getting a little nervous. And then finally, uh, Bob Duke, who's the head of music and human learning at UT Austin, uh, forwards an email to me uh, from Keith Kaiser, who is the interim dean uh, at Ithaca and uh, Radio Cremata, who is the uh, department chair of music education. And the email just said, hey, Bob, uh, we're looking for somebody. Do you know anybody? And he wrote back and he said, yeah, I know this guy, John Parsons. You should talk to him. And within a few days, I was on I was on a Zoom call with Dr. Kramata, and not long after that, my family's packing up and we're moving to Ithaca. So <laughs> that's that's about how it happened. Um, so was Ithaca an area you were looking at, or was it kind of out of the blue? Well, I, I'd always known about Ithaca College as a as a strong music ed program. In fact. When I first started uh, my PhD, I was talking to a very good friend of mine who happens to live here in Ithaca. He, he was a, my best friend in high school, believe it or not, back in Texas. And he, he, he works in the, uh, the law department at Cornell. And he was saying, okay, so you're going to be teaching college. I mean, it would be so great if you were to end up at Ithaca. And I thought, well, yeah, but I mean, that would be like shooting a moon, you know? Like, I mean, the, the odds of that happening. Well, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> you know? So I have, a, I have a, very good, a very good friend here. But yeah, I mean... Ithaca is is one of the oldest and most storied music education programs in the country, you know. So when I was starting all this process of you know becoming a, a, a teacher in higher education, of course it was a it was a potential landing spot that I would definitely have considered. I just didn't from a, from the standpoint of just the odds, it seemed so long, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. That's crazy. Interesting. Um, so, how do you stay passionate about teaching music? You know, that question, I love that question because my answer to it is going to sound so snarky and I don't mean it to, to sound snarky, but I stay passionate about teaching by teaching, 
you know, I mean, teaching seriously, teaching is a form of an intervention. You know, it, it's a it's a means of affecting change. And if you if you have that in your ilk as a person, you know, change making affecting change in the world, uh, teaching is one of the best ways to do it. And you know, for for me, I'm not only passionate about affecting change, but I'm passionate about music. So teaching music is just, I mean, it's easy. I, I, I do not have trouble getting up to do my job and thinking about what I want to do with my job on any given day or, or how I want to interact with students on any given day. I mean, that that motivation question is never a problem <laughs> for me, uh, you know, but I think when I there, it's not to say that I don't ever have bad days as a teacher or I, or I wonder if I'm doing the things that I need to be doing. Of course, those things happen. Anybody who thinks about being effective at whatever it is that they're doing has days where they go, you know what, I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing here. You know, So I don't want to paint the wrong picture, uh, but it, it's not hard for me to, to find a lot of enjoyment and passion in what I do. Um, so clearly you've worked in both public schools for a very long time and now higher education. What would you say are the major differences between teaching those two areas? You know, I, I think they are they are actually more the same than they are different. Uh, I mean, the, the differences are obvious, you know, the teaching in high schools and, you know, I also taught in some middle schools uh, in a more limited capacity as well. So, I mean, the first difference is the age gap of the students, you know. Uh, when you're teaching in middle school and high school, you're teaching a, a much, I say a much different developmental stage, but there, there's some significant differences between, you know, an 11 year old sixth grader, a, you know, 16 year old high school sophomore and a 22 year old uh, college junior or senior, you know, I mean, that there's <clears throat> clear differences there. And then there's also differences in, you know, when you start to teach when you start to train teachers at the college level, things can get a little bit more conceptual rather than what I would call procedural. You know, the, the two of you know by now that I, I, I love everything that has to do with the brain and learning and thinking. And, you know, training a musician to play an instrument is about developing a procedural memory for something. And there are a little bit more declarative things that you need to know about as a teacher if you're going to be an effective music teacher. So the components of a good embouchure, you know, to some extent, you know, fingerings on an instrument. These are sort of fact-like bits of knowledge, fact-like memories, declarative memories. So there's a little bit more of that in higher ed, but teaching is also a behavior, meaning that there's that procedural component to it. When I work with you, the two of you on your teaching, you know, teaching is a skill, it's a behavior, and so I'm, I'm asking you to think about things in a certain way, but at the end of the day, I watch you go out and do it, and, and then I try to get you to think about what you're doing differently, so the next time you do it, you do it differently, you know? So there's still that, that procedural component, and as you guys both know, I mean, I, the, the similarity between teaching someone to play you know, the drums when there's 11 and teaching someone to teach when they're 22, it's still fundamentally the same. I, I, I try to put an intention in your brain and then I make you go do it. And then you match whether or not your intention and the outcome are similar or not. And the degree to which they're not similar is what informs us and makes us decide what happens next. You know, so there's a lot of similarities between the two. So, 
what was one one thing you wish you knew about teaching music when you were in undergrad? <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's I know that's sort of a self-effacing answer, but you know, it, it's it, there's there's a lot of things. I think the first thing I would say to everyone who's learning to be a teacher that when they listen to this podcast, you know, I I would say there is so much that you're not going to know when you start out and that's perfectly expected. You know, it's, it's, there's, it's not that you shouldn't set a high bar for yourself. You definitely should. Um, but just understand that no matter how high you set that bar, it's still going to be a learning process. In my 10th year, I was still learning things, um, from other great teachers. So, you know, but I, I think if I had to just pick one thing to talk about, uh, it would be something actually that Raylene, you and I talked about this not long ago, which is, you know, this idea about what, how to motivate students. Um, th there's a lot of sort of mysticism around motivation, I think. You know, a lot of people think about this motivation as this weird, murky, squishy thing that lives in people or it doesn't. And you're trying to cram motivation into these people who don't seem to have it already. And, and actually, you know, what we've learned about motivation is that it, it's really only contingent on a few, thing, a few things that a teacher can control. And, and Raylene, this will be repetition of what you've heard me say already. But, you know, the, the first requirement is that learners need to know what it is you want them to do very clearly. They have to know what the goal is really, really clearly. And then whatever that goal happens to be, they have to think that they can do that. In other words, if you set the goal so far out ahead of where they are now, they're going to look at it and go, well, there's no way I can do that. And therefore they won't be motivated. So if it, if the goal is close enough to their current skill level and the goal is really clear, they understand it and they think they can do it. And then the third thing, the last requirement is they just have to know whether they're doing it or not. They have to get feedback. And, and that all three of those things are in the teacher's control. The teacher can choose the goal. The teacher can, can set it in such a way that it's, that it's achievable in the short term. And then the teacher provides feedback whether the student's doing it or not. And what happens over time, and, and this, is the, this is why I think I chose this to answer this question, is you know, if you build these kinds of experiences repeatedly for students, they start to find success under the teacher's guidance so on such a regular basis that they, it's sort of similar to what I said about teaching, you know, they don't find it difficult to walk into the room, open their case, put their instrument together and just get going because they know they're gonna be successful. And the longer that happens under the teacher's guidance, the higher the likelihood that they will then start to set their own goals independently and, and choose how to achieve those goals independently and provide their own feedback independently. You start to train the listening skills that they need so they know whether they're achieving the goal or not. And, and this sort of, to me, it, it demystifies the whole motivation question. You know, it may start extrinsic because it's in the teacher's control, but the, as I said, you know, the longer that students find success under your guidance, the higher and higher the likelihood that that motivation will become intrinsic because they just, they've started to, to develop the goal setting and the discrimination skills that they need to be just like you, you know? Yeah, it's so much simpler than like, I guess a lot of us think. <laughs> it, it is, but I, I'll also say that, you know, the way I described it, it's it's really clear, and it and I think it is that clear. Except that you you both know by now that there are enough variables at play in a learning experience that make those decisions difficult to make. 
you know? And so I, I don't want to leave you with the, with the image in your mind that, well, okay, that's it, done. I'll, I'll be a great motivating teacher as soon as I see my student the next time. Well, you know it's harder than that. Um, but the, the more you keep your mind as a teacher focused on those three components, um, the better you'll get at it. And then ergo, your students will start to benefit from your teaching intervention more and more. I really like that idea. Um, so we have a bonus question from our listeners. Uh, they would like to know if there are any differences between teaching in Texas versus New York, other than like the weather, obviously. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, and this will this will actually pivot into a big difference. Um, the the weather uh, does factor into things like marching band a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know. Uh, that I, without getting it down to the, the rabbit hole of marching band too far, I mean that's that's the big difference that most people talk about. Uh, marching band is marching bands in Texas have a reputation of being you know pretty intense and 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 very good. Um, and and that's I, one one thing I would say to demystify Texas a little bit is as you know it is a big place and uh, it's not uniform. You know the, things are not the same everywhere. You know, you can you can go to a suburban area in this large metropolitan area, and the marching bands are you know firing on all cylinders, and it's crazy. And then uh, you can go to a very similar area in another city, and there's nothing going on really with marching bands, but their mariachi and jazz programs are off the charts. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's a little bit of a misnomer about Texas. Um, that being said, I mean the biggest thing I notice about the way public school music programs in Texas differ from the, the Northeast sort of, if, if I had to paint kind of a broad, paint with broad strokes, is the, the prevalence of general music classes in the Northeast compared to Texas in the higher secondary levels of education. So in Texas, you know, general music courses are more or less limited to primary school. And then when students enter middle school, junior high, high school, it, it it's more specialized you know they have they go into band they go into choir they go to orchestra and so there, there's a, a high a, i think a more a higher frequency of more general type programs in in the northeast and there's also um the the, the music staff at a given school or a district is expected to do more in the northeast than they are in texas you know i was a band director <laughs> for 10 years and that's not to say that I didn't get to work with vocalists and I didn't get to work with string players, but 99.9% .9 of my job was teaching winds and percussion. I mean, that was it. And 99% and, and at, at high school, you know, I, I worked in the middle schools toward the end of my career a little bit more, uh, and I wish I had gotten to do that more. But it, the specialization aspect is very different between Texas and and the Northeast, and I, I say the Northeast, that's probably a big difference between Texas and just about everywhere in the United States. And a big reason for that, and I think I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, you know, music education in Texas is the law, literally the law. It is illegal for a school to not offer certain types of music programs. Uh, and that's a that's a big thing. And uh, it's, it's led to a lot of really good things. It's also led to some things that need to be reinvestigated because they've been in place for too long and they need to be updated, you know. That's very interesting. I never thought about that before. Well, clearly it like is helping with, if Texas is known as being, you know, this great band or like orchestra like place, 
that's probably a big reason why, which is interesting. Well, and you know, one thing I'll say too, and I'll, I'll keep this brief, but you know, Texas is also interesting in, as far as band goes. Historically, because this is sort of my own personal account of, of history, so my my word here is not, uh, you know, set in stone. But, uh, you know, at the end of World War II, Texas had more military bases than any other state in the United States. And then the war ended and all these bases closed and all these bases had bands. And so now you've got all these band people running around the state of Texas and they needed a job, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you combine that with the fact that football is so prevalent and popular in the state and always has been. And pretty soon bands become a, a fixture of the community. And, and it's not just about those legal things that I mentioned a moment ago. There, there's a cultural historical thing going on there too that, you know, it's worth remembering. Yeah. Well, that's our last question that we have. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add uh, just to close? Uh, you know, I'll, and I'll, again, I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. You know, I would just say that, you know, a, a moment ago, I touched on the idea that, you know, teaching is about comparing intentions and outcomes. And that word outcome uh, is something that reminds me of another sort of question that we all need to ask ourselves as teachers, which is what matters more, the process or the outcome? And, and these days, you know, I think people who are uh, progressively minded, and by progressive, I don't mean in the political sense. I mean, you know, people who are trying to move the profession forward. You know, there's an emphasis on process right now. And I think that's fantastic because for too long, I think the outcome mattered too much. And, and now I, I feel maybe a little bit like the, the process is starting to matter too much and the outcome is sort of being neglected. Um, and, and what I mean by that is it's important to have a good process that's equitable, uh, that's fair, that everyone has equal access to, that everyone's included in. And, and one of the outcomes of that is that we've got more people engaged in music education than ever before. And one of the outcomes that I think we need to sort of keep our mind on as we start to include more and more people into the process is that beautiful music making still matters a lot. Because think about this, how many people do you know that used to play an instrument? A lot. You know? Right. And, and the more people we add to the process, that's fantastic. But I want them all to play really well too, because the, the thing that makes you want to keep contributing to the, to the arts, whether that's actually playing an instrument or giving money to the arts or whatever it happens to be, going to concerts. I mean, one of the things that contributes to your love of music is how beautifully you can make it yourself. You know, so I, I, I would just sort of put that contrary opinion maybe out there into the into the universe to, for people to think about that while we do need to continue our, our re-emphasis of process and making sure that things uh, are moving in the right direction, that we don't lose sight of, you know, the outcome and the purpose of this whole enterprise, which is to teach children how to make really beautiful music in one way or another. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. <laughs> and thank you all for listening in today. Our podcast episodes will be posted on our Instagram and Facebook sites. <laughs>